0: you're listening to a Same But Different podcast.
1: Hello, my name is Ilmarie Braun and I work for Same But Different. Our online publication, Rarity Life, offers those affected by rare disease, disability and cancer the opportunity to share and create content that is truly inclusive. As part of each Rarity Life issue, we are creating a podcast series, Rarity Life Heard, to ensure that our interviews are accessible to a wider audience. In this episode, I spoke to Tully Kearney MBE about both her life as an athlete whilst managing a progressive neurological movement disorder and about what it means to be a Paralympian. Hi, thank you so much for joining me today. I was wondering if you would like to start by telling me, first of all, your name,
0: a little bit about yourself. So my name is Tully Kearney. I'm 25 and I have spastic diplegia, cerebral palsy and generalised dystonia. Do you know, was it immediately obvious to your parents that you had cerebral palsy or was that something that they slowly realised over time? So because I was my mum's second child, she knew straight away from the minute I was born that there was something wrong, but didn't know what it was. And the doctors just basically kept telling I was lazy. So I couldn't open my left eye for the first few weeks of my life. And she said that I didn't move my legs and I didn't really use my left hand. So she could tell there was something a bit different. But every time she brought it up, they just kept saying I was a lazy baby and I just had to learn. So I wasn't actually diagnosed until I was about three or four. Again, it it was difficult because every place we moved to, the doctors had a different opinion of what was wrong. So it did take quite a long time to get that diagnosis and get the support that I needed. Well, I can imagine that because actually for so many people with a rare
1: condition, getting the right support in place is quite a challenge. To imagine having to redo that every time you move as a family, that you know—that would have been a big job for your mum to have to find a new doctor and, and especially before you had an official diagnosis. And it's interesting what you said about her being a second time mum and knowing because I think... As a mum, you do know, and often that isn't taken seriously enough because she wasn't wrong, but, you know, there was a diagnosis waiting to be made.
0: Yeah, I think in my case, um, my mum went into labour extremely prematurely and they were worried that I wouldn't survive. So she was given a medication to stop the labour. And that's we're 90% sure that that's when my brain damage occurred, which caused a cerebral palsy. But obviously this is like 25 years ago and I don't think there were... I don't know whether they hadn't seen that on my notes or whatever, but it obviously wasn't linked up. Whereas I think nowadays that would be picked up a lot sooner because nowadays kids with cerebral palsy are being diagnosed much earlier.
1: Yeah, yeah. Once you had a diagnosis, do you remember a lot of intervention? So physio, OTs, was
0: that always part of life or was it actually just not really offered? It was kind of few and far between. I remember little little snippets of it, and I also, funny enough, I hated the water to start with because it was used as therapy. So I actually hated. it. Like, I didn't want anything to do with it. And my mum used to take me to swimming lessons, and I would refuse to move, and the teacher would have to come and drag me along because it just. I just didn't want to do it. I didn't want to be involved, and obviously, like I'm, I guess, my like four or five year old self saw that as therapy, and I didn't want to, didn't just didn't want to do it. But I remember briefly like having orthotics and. You no, know, seen some physios, but I think also the fact that we lived on an army base. Whereas back then Aldershot was very much military; it wasn't. It wasn't like it is now today. So I think that also restricted obviously what what we could access. You mentioned that you initially hated the water,
1: and you're a Paralympian. Yeah, I'm a swimmer. How did you go from the kid who didn't want to do any hydrotherapy to a Paralympian? How did that happen?
0: So my mum was actually summer as she was national champion in breaststroke
1: okay so there is a sporting background to your family
0: yeah my brother started swimming lessons and really my mum wanted us to know how to swim in case we fell in anywhere for water safety and because she'd got to such a high level she knew how much it takes and she didn't really want us to be swimmers she literally just wanted us to have the ability to swim on holiday and if we fell into a lake that we could get ourselves out of it just so that we were competent swimmers so my brother joined a swimming club and I literally spent most of my nights just on poolside watching it, and it was quite boring as like a seven, eight-year-old. Until one day the coach approached us and asked if I wanted to join in. At first, my mum was a bit sceptical. She was the protective parent, and, and she treated me very differently to my brother. She was very nervous and didn't want to do anything that could hurt me, and was aware that I had more limitations than anyone else. But at this point, I was kind of in a mental struggle that I wanted to be able to do everything my brother could do. I couldn't. He loved football. We did athletics. He obviously had his swimming. He was very fit and active. But I just couldn't physically do it. And I got very disheartened that there was just, I hadn't found any sport that was for me. But like I went along and I did like my 20, 30 minutes a week. <laughs> very little to start with. And I just absolutely fell in love with it. I realized that in the water, I wasn't as much disadvantaged. It was much easier for me to move in the water than it is on dry land. I was treated as any other kid. I wasn't treated as the disabled kid. I wasn't singled out. I could keep up with kids my own age. And more importantly, I could do something my brother could do. (laughs) So this was kind of the just complete freedom. And it actually really helped me clear my mind and get over all the anger and frustration I had of my disability. Because in the water, I didn't feel disabled. I felt like anyone else. And that's kind of where my complete love just stemmed from there. Yeah. And have you found a love for other sports
1: as well? Because obviously you've had periods where swimming has become a lot harder for you to manage.
0: Did you do something else in those periods or did you just work on rehab? Yeah, so obviously, with my dystonia being progressive, it has been very difficult. And I literally had to relearn how to swim again with the, the little movement I now have compared to before. So I do feel like a new swimmer. It's kind of like I've restarted my swimming career again, had to relearn how to do everything again. So through being at Manchester Met, I met an athlete who's also a sports scholar called Hannah Dinesh, paracyclist. She kept, for a couple of years, she kept saying, oh, there's this new athletic discipline. It's called race. At that point, it was called race running and I oh, should come and try it. And I was like, oh, no, I'm a swimmer. I'm good, thanks. I don't really want to do that. And then in 2018, I had bilateral shoulder surgery. I couldn't swim. I couldn't swim for six months. And I thought, oh, God, what am I supposed to do with myself? For me, for my mental health, I have to do something. I'm not very good at not training, not doing anything. A bit of an adrenaline junkie. So I love the adrenaline rush you get while pushing yourself. So... For me, it was always going to be some sort of sport. I was like, well, if I can't use my shoulders and I don't have much use of my legs, what do I do? So I figured out, well, I'll give this race frame a go. So she took me down to the track where her frame was kept. And basically, it's now called frame running. It's been renamed. And it's a three-wheel frame. So you can imagine trike, but instead of pedals, there's nothing there. So it's just a frame that's open at the bottom and you're leaned right forward on a chest plate. So the seat and the chest plate take all your body weight. And this was a sport that was made for people that were too disabled to do sport, that didn't want to do botches. They wanted to be active, but they were too disabled to do, you know, like running without a frame or swimming or whatever. So it was generally made for people with quadriplegic cerebral palsy that affected all their limbs that were quite severe. So... I went to the track and I realized that I actually could do it. I found something that I could actually use my legs and I just absolutely fell in love with it. And again, because I can't use my legs in the water anymore, I obviously still get an adrenaline rush and obviously still love swimming, but I can't push myself as hard. I can't get my heart rate up quite as high because I'm just arms. So with this, it's much harder for me to use my legs than it is to use my arms. So my heart rate goes very high and it just gives me more of an adrenaline rush No, I absolutely love it. And there's actually now a frame running club that I've helped set up in Manchester. We've got like little four-year-olds that come. We've got loads of little kids. And just seeing these kids that are in wheelchairs all day get up and run around the track is just absolutely incredible. Wow. Just going sideways a step because not everyone will understand
1: all of the words that you're using. So, for example, cerebral palsy, I think, is really well known, but it's dystonia. Generally, isn't as well known, and you also mentioned spasticity, and I don't think it would necessarily be clear to people where the differences
0: lie. So, would you mind talking a little bit about what that is and what that means in your life? Yeah, so with cerebral palsy, there's different types. The type I have is spastic diplegia, which means that basically, with spasticity. Your muscles are very tight. So for me, it's mostly hamstrings, doctors and hip flexors. For different people, it's different muscle groups and affects them in different ways. So. Because cerebral palsy is brain damage, every single person is going to be affected differently. It can affect different bodily functions, speech, all different. It depends on obviously where the brain is affected and how badly it is damaged. And you can also have more than one type of cerebral palsy. So with dystonia, there is definitely a link between, like, there's a lot of people with cerebral palsy that also have dystonia or have dystonic cerebral palsy. There seems to be a very big link between trauma and brain injury and dystonia. So I know people that have developed a brain injury and then developed dystonia or had cerebral palsy and um, developed dystonia or had got into like had a horse accident had a car crash and then now developed dystonia so it is very much interlinked with trauma sometimes and sometimes it just seems random (laughs) again dystonia there is so many different types and for me i have generalized so it affects my whole body but i also have elements of fixed dystonia so i have some Muscle contractures, which obviously restrict my range of movement. So for me, when I was about 11, 12, we started to notice that I was progressive, like my mobility was getting progressively worse, which with cerebral palsy, obviously it's a brain injury, so the brain injury doesn't get worse. But as you get older, your muscles can't keep up with the growth of the bones. So your legs, especially if you have spasticity, your muscles get tighter. So mobility does seem to get worse And you might develop contractures and need surgery, need other medical things. So you can have a contracture, whereas you've just got restricted. You can have a fixed contracture where it can't move at all, which is quite common in kids with cerebral palsy. But this progression wasn't normal and no one could explain it. Like it shouldn't be happening if I only had cerebral palsy. And this is where I had about four years of testing. It is definitely getting more well known now, but even for the top specialist neurologists, a lot of them still don't understand fully what dystonia is. So I had to have a few years of studies and when I was 14, I saw this neurologist that I'd been under for many years and he thought I had something called dope responsive dystonia, which is a certain type that if you take L-dopamine, which is basically, so dopamine is the hormone we have in our spinal fluid that obviously surrounds our brain and spine that promotes movement. And in people with dystonia, that is low. And there's a certain number of people with dystonia that have what's called dope responsive dystonia. So if they take L-DOPA, which is basically a dopamine supplement, they can basically be cured. But there's not as many people that have the response of and Most people, like, it doesn't make any difference. So at 14, I was told if I took the supplement, that I'd be cured. And unfortunately, I don't have the DOPA response to dystonia, so it didn't work. And then at that point, I was told it was all my head. I was exaggerating. And he discharged me from the neurology service, and I was just stuck. So obviously, being told that you'd be cured at 14, and then it's still getting worse. Uh, the drug's not having any effects. And then being told basically I was faking it was absolutely horrendous and really difficult to deal with. And then we had to go through POWs, make a complaint and get seen by another neurologist <laughs> who had more of an idea. So I was very lucky that because of my age, they managed to put me into... It was like a child and an adult. It was like transition service. So, I got to see the top specialists, and um, they took a lot of videos of my movements and me walking and took it to a conference. And then everyone agreed on the diagnosis that I have generalized dystonia. There are many people that have been treated even worse than I have trying to get a diagnosis of dystonia because many professionals don't know what it is, and never heard of it. It is definitely getting better. But again, there is, I've been told by specialists at some of our conferences for dystonia that if you screened all of the population in the world that have cerebral palsy, a massive percentage over 50% would also have dystonia. Most of them would never know because I think it's, if you've already got one disability, people assume, well, you can't have another one, you're already disabled. But also depending on what type of cell palsy you have, the symptoms can be very similar. How you mentioned being told at
1: 14 that at least an element of what you were going through could be cured. And then obviously your body didn't respond because that wasn't the kind of dystonia that you had. How have you dealt with those sorts of knocks? Because you've also had the experience where you said you had to learn how to swim again because you're, you know, because of your progression. And how do you find that
0: mental resilience to build back from those kind of blows? It, it is very difficult. I'm kind of so. I think at first, at 14, I obviously I had my training. I had an outlet, and at that point, I was training what 25, 30 hours a week. So. It was a lot of time spent in the pool where I could get out all the annoyance. But it was a very upsetting time, not just for myself, but for my family, like my mum as well. I think it was harder for me in 2016 when my condition massively progressed. So typically in dystonia with certain types, if you develop it at a certain age, you generally get a five-year rapid progression. So I was kind of, I hadn't quite finished that five-year rapid progression at this point. And obviously getting so much worse so quickly for, for quite a long period of time as well. It's quite disheartening, <laughs> Like no one knew when it was going to stop, if it was going to keep getting worse, if it was going to keep getting worse at that fast rate. Honestly, like the future is unknown. <laughs> so I think that that's one thing that's obviously been difficult, but I kind of realized there's always people in way worse situations. So what am I moaning about? Like it could be worse. I could lose all my mobility and completely lose the ability to swim. And also if I just sit in bed and feel sorry for myself and, you know, don't do anything because I'm in pain what am I going to achieve in life? I'm literally not going to do anything. Like, There's there's a whole world out there. I don't want to just literally be sat in a dark room <laughs> because that, that literally isn't going to help. It just makes you feel worse. I mean, it's an
1: incredible, it's the right way to, to see it, but it's incredible that you manage to, because sometimes, you know, what we know works, like, you know, we know moving helps us. We know that being active, being busy, seizing life, making the most of it. We know all of those things are really positive, but they're really hard to do sometimes. I think it's a testament to your strength that you've been able to still reach for those positives and find those positives. So obviously sport is a massive commitment. It takes a lot of sacrifices. Are those sacrifices ones you find easy to balance? So if you look at like your social life, your university life, has it always been really clear to you where your priorities lie or is that something that's changed over time as well?
0: So it's definitely changed. Before my condition got a lot worse and I had to withdraw from Rio and like, start again, basically. Everything was about swimming. Like If I ever talked to people, every, we talked about swimming, that like I was living with swimmers, that like I was always around swimmers. But since I got worse, like it, it, it's definitely been an eye-opener. So obviously like, I'm not going to swim forever. But things like I wasn't allowed to go to prom... <laughs> Because they didn't want me to, you know, be out too late and then be tired for training. And so it's obviously, you do give up a lot of stuff, missing out on social opportunities. Uh, not many people know this, but I was actually a music scholar at the first secondary school I went to. I played the flute, I played cello, I was in a steel pan band and I sung. And because I was a scholar as well, we were doing grade five music theory in year nine, which is obviously quite advanced. I had to pick between some music, but like we had rehearsals in the day, which meant that I was training early morning and then spending my break and lunch in rehearsals and after school and then going straight back to the pool. And it I just didn't have any time to chill. And so I had to make a decision and I had to completely give all music up. So I didn't hadn't even looked at sheet music in like well over 10 years. So I just kind of had to, you know, move on. And that was a very difficult decision. How old were you when you had to make that decision? 14 so a lot happened at 14 for you yeah. yeah and at 13 as well I was a funded athlete got put on the world Para swimming program and like a lot of things were changing a lot of things were happening and then obviously becoming a boarder at a boarding school so that I could train nine nine times a week and yeah it's very different yeah it's hard anyway if you're an athlete because in most
1: sports have really quite a young shelf life I mean people are retiring at the age where most of us still don't even know what we want to do with our life but with you you've also got the reality of your physical condition getting worse and it must be hard to keep those separate in
0: your mind it was definitely difficult before Tokyo because we weren't in a very, very good environment and the stress and everything triggered a massive progression of my so I was very nervous that something would happen before Tokyo and I wouldn't get to go again. I had to withdraw a week before. I lost my funding, I lost my place at the centre. And also, I was told I'd never swim again for the second time. And I had to try and relearn how to live independently and how to do day-to-day things, like how to get dressed myself, how to cook with like, what function I now had. So I was obviously very nervous. And I knew that I wasn't safe until I was actually flying to Tokyo. It was definitely in um, the back of my mind. Now, I think I'm just taking like every extra year I get as a bonus and just taking it as I come and just see how far I can push it. With the dystonia, is there pain associated for you? So it can be difficult to differentiate between the seropolis and the dystonia. So, from having spasticity and really tight muscles, I do have pain, especially when stretching and trying to stand and things. Although I generally don't, my mobility isn't brilliant. And after quite a few falls, we have kind of like given up I think on the idea of trying to stand and stuff in the gym <laughs> before I had my shoulder surgery I had constant nerve pain and we couldn't understand why I had nerve pain and after I had the surgery I've not had any nerve pain since so obviously the pain from the joint issues was causing my dystonia to massively overreact so it can like if you're stressed um, anxious like I noticed my symptoms are a lot worse but so the dystonia generally reacts to things is so how you're feeling as a whole but generally nowadays it's not it's not too bad. I do get spasms that hurt frequently, but it's not as bad. I mean, most of the spasms I get now, I guess I'm so used to that I just don't really notice them anymore. I don't really feel it.
1: How do you identify, Do you, you know, in terms of your disability, is it something that you are proud of and you feel like you could be an advocate for the disabled community? Or is it not how you see yourself because you identify so much more strongly as a sports person or, or do the two connect?
0: Yeah. It's obviously you're a Paralympian. I think when I first started using the chair... I hated it because of the public's perception so I was getting stared at if I went into a shop even if I paid or I spoke to the lady at the till, they would always speak to and give the money or whatever back to the persons with me completely ignore me and it was that I think mindset that people assume that people in wheelchairs aren't cognitively there that they must have a learning disability which isn't true like obviously cerebral palsy is brain damage and any, anyone obviously could have any condition using a wheelchair but there is a massive um, misconception that someone with a brain injury is not going to be cognitive fair, which actually 80% of the time, that's not true. There are people with cerebral palsy or brain injury that obviously are um, intellectually impaired, but that isn't always the case. And quite frequently it's not, but we're treated like it is. And, and even if they are intellectually impaired, it doesn't mean you should ignore them. They're still a human being, Like you should treat everyone, even if they can't speak, they can't, they're deaf, they can't hear you. They're not able to communicate back to you. They're still a human being and they deserve you know, to be spoken to. And I think that that was one thing that I found really difficult. So at the start, I would push myself and push myself trying to walk with crutches until I would literally fall till I collapsed because I didn't want to use the chair because I was getting stared at. And I'd have people make sarky comments, uh, call me a cripple, like, be like, oh, you need a speed limit for that thing. Like silly comments that really aren't helpful. I think for me, the, the big turning point was being able to get back into swimming I never thought I'd get back in the pool. And when I did, I never thought I'd get back to international level. So when I qualified for the European Championships in 2018, that's kind of when it clicked in my head that actually, maybe um, I could still go to a Games, maybe, because I kind of gave up and in the mindset that oh, I'm never going to go to Games now, that's it. Like, I've had my chance and it's it's gone because my condition got worse. And at that point, I was made patron of Dystonia UK, which is the only charity in the UK that helps people with Estonia. So I think it's, for me... I really want to show other people, not just people with dystonia, but people with progressive conditions, that there are still things that are possible. It just might not look like what you are expecting.
1: Thank you for listening to Rarity Life Heard. I loved talking to Tully. Her obvious love and need to swim, to compete, to continually push herself was truly eye-opening. They say that to be a successful Olympian, you need determination and training. And just listening to Tully speak made it clear that she has both the steely determination and the commitment to train in spades. But with Tully, it feels as though it goes much deeper than that. That swimming speaks to who Tully is and gives her the opportunity to truly be herself, not different to just be Tully. To use her own words, it was much easier for me to move in the water than it is on dry land. I was treated as any other kid. I wasn't treated as a disabled kid. I wasn't singled out. I could keep up with kids my own age. So there was just a kind of complete freedom. We hope you enjoyed listening to Tully as much as we enjoyed talking to her. To find out more, you can follow her on all her social media platforms. To see more of the work we do, you can visit our exhibitions on our website and you can also find out more about our support services there.